We've been looking at uh, Jesus' teaching on prayer, and we're going to return to it this morning. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. Let me read Jesus' teaching uh, for us, and then we're going to reflect on part of it together. Jesus teaches his disciples, and he says, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come with anticipation to your word because we know it's through your word that you speak to us. Through your word and through your spirit, you can speak a word that each of us most needs to hear. So help us to be ready, alert, ready to receive. And we ask that you'd speak to us. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On June 5th, 1944, the day before D-Day, General Dwight Eisenhower wrote these words to the soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force. You're about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940 and 41. The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats in open battle, man-to-man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. Signed, General Dwight Eisenhower. The next day, June 6, 1944, 160,000 Allied troops landed in Normandy. It was a sea landing that started at 6.30 on the beaches codenamed Omaha and Utah and Gold and Sword and Juno. 11,000 Allied aircraft and 7,000 ships and boats were involved. It was an invasion, unprecedented in scale and audacity. The Allied soldiers who stormed the beaches walked into a hailstorm of German bullets from the cliffs. Many gave their lives that day, over 4,000 Allied troops, 2,500 Americans. But that was the battle that decisively turned the tide and changed the whole course of World War II. These soldiers who gave their lives in this country were known as members of the greatest generation because they grew up in the Great Depression and they were willing to sacrifice their lives for their country. They asked us this morning, do we have a cause that is worth living? And dying for? 
We live in a culture where everyone define, is taught to define their own reality and write their own narratives. We often have no cause greater than ourselves. But I think Jesus gives us a cause greater than ourselves in the Lord's Prayer, which we are studying this fall phrase by phrase. Jesus is teaching us how to pray, and he gives us this framework for our prayer. I think that's why I think the Lord's Prayer is. It's this framework each phrase represents a whole area to pray. It can launch a whole area of our own prayers. First lesson we've learned together is the approach of prayer. That, that is recollection. Remember who it is that we're praying for. Father in heaven, pause. Think about who you're praying to, who you're speaking to, because who you're speaking to determines the communication. Second lesson, praise before petition. Hallowed be your name comes before asking for our daily bread. We talked about that two weeks ago. The first three petitions are actually all about God. I've, I've mentioned that. It's not about us. Notice, it's, notice the, the pronouns, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Before we pray for our daily bread and our sins and our protection. This morning, I'd like to look at this phrase, your kingdom come. Jesus teaches us to pray for God's kingdom to come. And I would suggest that this is the great cause that we can live and die for, and Jesus says to pray for, that God's kingdom would come. To understand this, not language that we normally use in everyday conversation, so to understand this, I want to ask three questions. What does it mean for God's kingdom to come? How does it come? And when does it come? So there's a what, and there's a how, and there's a when that I'd like to consider with you. First, what does it mean for God's kingdom to come? Sometimes when we hear the Bible talk about a kingdom, we think of a place. You know, when you hear the word kingdom, you think of a, a, a region or a location. For example, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. You immediately think of a place in the Middle East. But when the New Testament talks about, the God, about God's kingdom, it is fundamentally talking about God's rule and his reign. And so praying for God's kingdom to come is praying that God would exercise his rule and reign in this world. And you say, you know, may, that, that might be, you know, a little strange because it, it might be like me asking you, you to pray that I would have three kids. And you're like, ah, Dan, you, you have three kids. Doesn't God already rule and reign? Why are we praying that God rules and reigns? Because Psalm 103, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Velda read in Daniel 4, his kingdom endures from generation to generation. So on the one hand, God does rule and reign. We don't need to pray for it. He does. He, he already rules and reigns. But in another sense, God's rule and reign is challenged in this world. By this very petition, Jesus is suggesting that there is a war between two kingdoms. This was Augustine's great insight in his magnum opus, the City of God that he wrote, it's a thousand pages long, took him a, a few years to write. He wrote this work as he witnessed in his day the fall of the great Roman Empire. No one thought it would ever happen. He saw the great Roman Empire crumbling and he wrote the City of God to explain what happened. In the second part of his book, he traces the biblical storyline from Genesis to Revelation as a narrative that best explains the world he lived in and is, explains his deepest hopes, desires, and dreams. Christopher Walken, who wrote a book on the city of God by Augustine, says this. I think it's 
very insightful. He says, Augustine does not just explain the Bible to Roman culture. He explains Roman culture through the Bible. Through the framework of the Bible, he explains Roman culture. Augustine says the story from Genesis to Revelation is a story of two cities. Two cities have been formed by two loves, he writes. The earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. In other words, there's two cities. There's a city of God governed by the love of God, and there's a city of man governed by the love of self, which in Augustine's day was the city of Rome. Two cities and two loves. And Augustine says these two cities are in conflict with each other. But it's a conflict that will end because the city of God will one day rule the world and the city of man will pass away just as Rome had crumbled in Augustine's day. Augustine's city of God presents a biblical social theory of reality and history. I would suggest to you that in the, in the, in the three words of this petition, your kingdom come, Jesus is suggesting not only a petition for prayer, but a biblical social theory, a narrative that explains all of reality. There are two kingdoms in this world. There is the kingdom of God, governed by the love of God. And there is a kingdom of man, governed by the love of self. And this is woven all through Scripture. Let me just point out, it is expressed in Genesis 3.15, at the very beginning of Scripture. God says to the serpent, he curses him, and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And this is the conflict that runs all through Scripture, I would suggest, all through this world. First, the conflict between the woman and the serpent, and then between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent, and ultimately culminating in one offspring of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent, whose name is Jesus Christ. And it's this great setup for 1 John 3, 8 that says the reason why Jesus appeared in this world, the reason he appeared was to destroy the devil's work. It's a setup for the end of Scripture. Revelation 19 is this picture of Jesus coming on, as a rider on this white horse. His eyes are like fire. He's wearing many crowns, leading the armies of heaven. Why? Revelation 19 says to destroy the beast, the dragon of Revelation, that ancient serpent. So here's the thing. The beginning and end of the biblical story is about this great story. This holy conflict between the divine warrior Jesus Christ and the ancient serpent. You see, it's a bigger story than just personal forgiveness and personal salvation. Christianity is about that. But it's a much bigger story. About this divine conflict between Jesus and the serpent. And that holy conflict, I would suggest to you, is under every conflict in the Bible. That's the undergirding conflict that's really happening when Jesus is, when, when Israel is battling um, Egypt and Canaan and David is battling Goliath and uh, the apostles are persecuted by the Sanhedrin and the early church is in conflict with the culture around them. The underlying conflict is a conflict between the divine warrior, Jesus Christ, and the ancient serpent. And Jesus is bringing all this up when he teaches us to pray, your kingdom come. He's acknowledging the fact that there are two kingdoms in this world in conflict. And this is a prayer. What are we praying when we pray, your kingdom come? It is a prayer that God's rule and reign would be established in a world gripped by evil and ruled by self and under the influence of the devil. It is a prayer that evil would be vanquished once and for all. 
and that we would enjoy the reign of justice and peace and love. My friends, this is, this is a, a, a prayer petition, a prayer request, and it's also, I think, as I've been trying to say, a narrative that explains reality. Of course, it's not the only uh, explanation of reality or narrative that is presented to us. We are surrounded by social theories of reality because everyone's trying to figure out what's wrong with the world and proposing solutions. So, for example, if you have seen the movie Barbie in the theaters, uh, in that moment, you probably never have seen so many men in pink. And then, as the movie started, you quickly realize that this movie is more than just a movie about a doll. It's a social theory. And as it unfolds, you begin to learn the social theory. Barbie realizes that there's something wrong in Barbie land. You remember, remember the moment? She, she begins irresistibly thinking about death, and she's like, why am I thinking about death all the time? in Barbie land. She realizes uh, this discovery that she has bad breath and flat feet and the waffles get burnt and she says, there's something wrong in Barbie land. And she goes in search for an answer with, with what's wrong with the world. And for, for much of the movie, the answer is men, right? Inept men and insensitive men. The problem uh, 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 with the world is patriarchy. Men have ruined the world. That's the narrative. That's a social theory. If we can just throw off the constraints of patriarchy, the world will become a better place. It's feminist social theory. We've now become acquainted with Marcus, Marxist social theory and critical race theory. This says the problem in the world is oppression. There are oppressors and there are the oppressed. And the solution to the problem is to overthrow the oppressors. There's queer theory that identifies the problem in the world as traditional views of sexuality and gender. And the solution is to throw off the constraints of a binary view of sex and gender. You see, we're surrounded by an ever-multiplying number of social theories that identify or attempt to identify the root problem in the world and propose a solution. In the second petition, Jesus is offering us a biblical social theory. He's saying that the root problem of the world is this conflict between two kingdoms. The root problem of the world is this conflict between good and evil, the line that runs between every human heart. The root problem of the world is this conflict between God's rule and reign and human pride and independence. The root problem is not men or women or a certain group of people, or certain views of sex and gender. The root problem of our culture, Jesus says, is our, 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 our autonomy. Our independence, our declared independence from God, which the Bible calls sin. That's what it is. It's declaring our independence and autonomy against God. Instead of loving God, we love ourselves. Instead of choosing God's kingdom, we choose our own kingdom. And Jesus is offering this up as an explanation of reality. Jesus is saying, you know, here's the root problem. When we choose to run our own lives, when we choose to be our own king, that ruins our lives. We learn that by experience. C.S. Lewis, this great quote, famous quote, he observes about a life of selfishness and not loving anyone else. He says this, here's what happens. Wrap your heart carefully, round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock your heart up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable. 
impenetrable, irredeemable. Jesus says the healing of our hearts, the healing of the selfishness that turns us inward to ourselves is to turn towards God and love him. The fundamental question that we all will face, no matter who we are, that will determine the quality of our life in this life and the next is this question. Which kingdom will you live for? God's kingdom or your own kingdom? That's what it means to pray for God's kingdom to come, is to pray for God's rule and reign in this world. How does God's kingdom come secondly? Let's consider this this how question. Because many uh, people make mistakes at this point through the years. Bill mentioned at the outset of our service that even Jesus' own disciples didn't get it. After the, after the cross and the resurrection, they asked this question at the beginning of Acts, Lord, are you at this time going to restore your kingdom to Israel? They had an understanding of the kingdom as this political earthly realm. The kingdom of Israel, are you going to restore it? Are you going to give us a triumph over the Romans? They only understood God's kingdom as this political earthly entity. And if they could misunderstand, if the uh, Jesus' own disciples could misunderstand God's kingdom, then so can we. There are a number of ways as we think back through history of the ways that this has happened. Some have thought that God's kingdom comes primarily through military means. It was the mistake of the Crusades in the Middle Ages. The church actually had an army that went to war under the banner of Christ to drive the Muslims out of the Holy Land. It was a mistake. It's a blight in Christian history. When Jesus was arrested, remember, Peter drew his sword and and cut off the ear of the high priest. And and Jesus says, put your sword away. That's That's not how my kingdom comes. It's not by military means. Some people think that God's kingdom comes through legislative means. It's when Christians are viewed primarily as a voting block. It's this mentality that we can bring God's kingdom, if we can just pass Christian laws and take over all the positions of power in politics, we can make America Christian again. But the basic problem with this is, is that if Christians just become a voting block, then politics becomes more important than the gospel. Politics becomes the gospel. This is the way that the kingdom of God comes in. It's through politics, not the gospel, through politics. And we have to realize that laws are limited in what they can accomplish. Laws can restrain hearts, but they can't change hearts. I mean, it's the story of that proverbial little boy who who stands up and he's defiant against his parents, and the parents want him to sit down, and he will not sit down, he refuses. And so finally, his parents force him to sit down, and they physically make him sit down, and he defiantly says to them, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. I mean, just as a, as a reminder, laws can restrain the heart, but they can't change them. You cannot legislate God's rule and reign of God into people's hearts. America will never become the kingdom of God because it's the kingdom of men. It's a category error. It's the problem of Christian nationalism. See, on the one hand, there is nothing wrong with patriotism. Patriotism says, my country is special to me. There's nothing wrong with that. Nationalism says this, my country is special to God. There's nothing wrong with saying my country is special to me. But you move into a whole other realm when you say my country is special to God. And America is not the new Israel. The church is. When Jesus was on trial before Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. It comes from another place. The United States is not the kingdom of God. It will never become the kingdom of God. You see, the kingdom of God comes and overtakes all the countries of this world. 
The kingdom of of God will not come through military means or legislative means. It will not also come from through monetary means. Sometimes we think, if we can just find enough big donors with deep pockets and give enough money and build enough mega churches and run enough ad campaigns, we'll bring God's kingdom into this world. And it's the mistake of Simon the Magician in Acts. When he sees Peter and John lay hands on people and give the Holy Spirit, Simon says, that's really great. How much money can I give you so I can do the same thing? And Peter says, may your money perish with you for thinking that you can buy the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God does not come through military means or legislative means or monetary means. Jesus says, he teaches us that the kingdom of God comes through prayer. As a way of suggesting the kingdom of God comes by God's power in his timing, at his initiative. God is the one who establishes his rule and reign. And that rule and reign starts in the hearts of men and women. God's kingdom comes and is established in this world one heart at a time. As one person at a time submits the rule and reign of God. That's why we must pray. Only God can change a human heart from being self-willed and self-dominated to turning towards God and submitting to his rule and reign. How does God's kingdom come into this world? One heart at a time. As God changes hearts and brings them under his rule and his reign. And my friends, what this means is when a person becomes a Christian, They are meant then to bear witness to the kingdom of God. They are meant to demonstrate in their lives what it looks like to live under the rule and reign of God because it has implications. Suddenly, it changes every area of life. When God is our king, it changes the way that we use our time. It changes our priorities. It changes the way we spend our money. It changes our morals and what we consider right and wrong. It changes our attitudes towards others. And when a group of Christians come together in community called the church, they are meant together to bear witness to God's coming kingdom in the ways that they relate to each other. And I would suggest to you that the church is meant to be like an embassy in a foreign country. Say, if you go to Washington, D.C., and you walk into the French embassy, what happens? You suddenly find yourself in a different world. I mean, you're still in the U.S., you're still in D.C., but but you get a taste of a different culture, right? Suddenly you hear people speaking French, and you... You know, if they're serving food, it's oftentimes French food, and, and, and they're just French values, and you're getting a taste and glimpse of French culture. If you go to Washington, D.C., and you walk into the, the, the German embassy, same thing. You, you'll get a taste of a different culture. You'll, you'll hear German spoken. You'll, you'll eat German food. You'll get this taste of German culture. In the same way, when people step into the church, they ought to experience a different culture a kingdom culture. They ought to experience kingdom kindness and kingdom grace and kingdom relationships. And so you see, being a Christian is not just believing the right doctrines. It is that. It's more than that. It's about this heart being changed and living under the rule and reign of God such that you you bear witness to God's kingdom, his coming kingdom. And so if you're a Christian here this morning, question that we ought to ask ourselves is, do people around you recognize anything different about you and your life and the way you live your life and your values and the way you treat people? 
When people step into Redeemer Montclair, do they experience anything different? Do they experience a kingdom welcome and kingdom care and kingdom community life? What does it mean for God's kingdom to come? It's his rule and reign being established. How does God's kingdom come? One heart at a time. Bearing witness in the church as this embassy in a foreign culture. So then third, when will God's kingdom come? The when question. In 1945, the German theologian Helmut Telika preached a sermon on the Lord's Prayer as he stood in the ruins of the University Chapel in Hamburg at the end of World War II. He said, we must not think of the coming of the kingdom as a gradual Christianization of the world, which will increasingly eliminate evil. Such dreams and delusions, which may have been plausible enough in more peaceful times, have vanquished in the terrors of our man-made misery. Who can still believe today that we are developing toward a state in which the kingdom of God reigns in the world of nations, in culture, and in the life of the individual? He says, the earth has been plowed too deep by the curse of war. The streams of blood and tears have swollen all too terribly. Injustice and bestiality have become all too cruel and obvious for us to consider such dreams to be anything but bubbles and froth. And perhaps we feel this way in 2023, in the midst of such wars and disasters and division and brokenness. We say, when will God's kingdom come? It doesn't look anywhere close. Well, the New Testament tells us that God's kingdom broke into this world when the king arrived in Jesus Christ. Jesus, you recall, started his ministry with these words. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus, in his ministry, drove out demons, and he said this, If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus, in his ministry, was establishing the rule and reign of God in this world when he healed the sick and drove out demons and, and preached the Sermon on the Mount. The kingdom of God broke into this world when Jesus came and when he was born. And yet the New Testament talks about the kingdom of God also in future terms. I mean, here in the Lord's Prayer, we are, we are to pray that God's kingdom would come in the future. So the question is, which is it? Is it present or is it future? And the answer is yes. It's both. The kingdom of God is present and future. It's already and not yet. Jesus explains this dynamic in the simple parable of the mustard seed. He says the kingdom of God is like a small mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds. And yet when you put it in the ground, it one day grows into the largest of garden plants. The kingdom of God is present though small, and seemingly insignificant. And yet, it's not yet consummated. It will one day grow to be a great kingdom. The kingdom of God is present in the church like an embassy in a foreign country. This taste of a coming culture, not consummated in its full reality. My friends, this means we live in between the times. We live in this already not yet tension. And one of the best illustrations that, that explains, I think, the dynamics of the coming kingdom of God is to return to our opening illustration, the way the Allies defeated Germany in 1944 in World War II. 
That key decisive victory that I described at the beginning of the sermon was won on D-Day when the Allied troops stormed the beaches at Normandy and defeated the Germans. But that was not the end of the war. The war continued on. Battles were still fought. Lives were still lost. But after D-Day, the Germans had essentially lost the war, war already. But the war wasn't officially over. The Allies didn't officially declare victory until V-Day. And so it is with the coming of the kingdom of God. D-Day was the day when Jesus died on the cross and rose again. And in his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, Jesus accomplished a decisive victory over sin and death and Satan. And yet the war is not over. The battle is not over. Satan and the kingdoms of this world still oppose the kingdom of God as we know all too well. There are still many battles that are both won and lost. But we can look forward to V-Day when Jesus returns and God's kingdom is established on earth. Revelation pictures it as the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to be established on earth. And when the kingdom of God is established on earth, when God's rule and reign is established on earth, Satan and evil will be vanquished. And peace and justice will prevail. And God's people will dwell in God's kingdom under his rule and his reign. God's kingdom is the great cause that we live for. Do you find yourself living for this world? Do you find yourself living only for your own kingdom? I would suggest it's like being rich in monopoly money. You can have as much monopoly money as you want, as you can have, but at the end of the day, it does no good because it all goes back in the box. Come to Jesus Christ. Let him change your heart and live for his eternal kingdom. God's coming kingdom is the great cause that we live for. It is also grounds for hope and courage and patience in this world. Jesus is telling us that the kingdoms of this world will crumble and fall, just like Rome. But it's okay because they're not our true home. Our true home, our true country is the kingdom of God, which broke into this world in Jesus Christ and will be consummated when Jesus returns. And then God's coming kingdom is a petition for prayer. Kevin DeYoung, an author whom I appreciate, uh, wrote a chapter on this prayer petition, and he says he kept a prayer journal in college and he went back and read that journal and he tallied up all the things that he prayed for in his freshman year of college to see what most captured his prayer attention. He said three prayer concerns came up over and over again. Can you guess what they are? It says, number one, a family member who'd been struggling with some physical issues. Number two, girls. I always had an internal drama about some girl I liked, even Kevin DeYoung. Number three, running. I wanted to be a great runner. Kevin DeYoung says it's not wrong to pray about family members and girls and running, but he was not praying big, God-centered, kingdom-focused prayers. Here's a third lesson for prayer. In so many of our prayers, our prayer is too small because our God is too small. Don't be afraid to pray for big things. Jesus is teaching us to pray for God's kingdom to come for his rule and reign to be established in our hearts and then in the Redeemer Montclair and then in this neighborhood and this community and this world. 
Because that's the ultimate solution to our problems, to all our problems, isn't it? That God's kingdom would come. His rule and reign, that it would be established. John Newton says this, Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words of Jesus teaching us to pray. Lord, we confess to you that our prayers are often too small because ultimately we believe you're too small. You couldn't do things like this. But Lord, thank you that we can pray that your kingdom would come, that your rule and reign would be established in this world. Lord, that's the ultimate solution that we all long for, the reign of your justice and your peace and your love and your kindness and your healing. Lord, would you teach us to pray big prayers? For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.